Well, thank you, comrade. I, uh, sorry I'm late. I uh, just returned from a meeting of the Politburo. And uh, I am here this morning to give you a message on the truths of Bolshevism or what Christians can learn from Marxists. Now, this message is being delivered by one who was a former Marxist, but will never be a former Christian. And even though I will not be going through any passage of Scripture as such, I trust that everything I say will be biblical. Now, you may wonder why a message like this. Well, as I said yesterday, if the spiritual man, 1 Corinthians 2.15, is able to appraise all things according to a theocentric worldview, then isn't it possible for believers to learn something from Bolsheviks? Besides that, this is uh, the greatest example I can think of of divine humor of a Reformed theologian extracting biblical truth from Marxist ideology for the edification of the saints. And so that's what I plan to do this morning. Now, what I want to do, first of all, is set a context for you of why I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And then I'd like to discuss some issues where I think we as Christians can learn from the Marxists. Those issues are three in particular, involving the idea of community, of commitment, and of criticism. And then I'd like to close with a concluding challenge. Now, as we come to the context, I want to set the context for you this morning uh, in three areas. First, historically, in terms of what Marxism and Bolshevism are all about. Secondly, personally, in terms of my own involvement in that background. And then thirdly, culturally, in terms of things that are going on, especially with the baby boom generation today. Now, to start historically, uh, to understand what Marxism is all about, you need to understand uh, three men and their thinking. The first man is George W.F. Hegel, who was a German philosopher in the early 19th century and completely changed the understanding of truth. He denied absolute truth. He taught instead that every thesis, when standing in opposition to an antithesis, Instead of remaining in tension to that which is its opposite, it merges and blends together to form a synthesis. That synthesis then becomes a new thesis with yet another antithesis, and there is yet another synthesis that takes place. The point is this, truth is redefined as a dynamic, ever-changing process. Now, the second name to know is that of Karl Marx. Uh, Marx was a German Jew studied under Hegel at the University of Berlin, involved in the German Revolution of 1848, and then accompanied his friend Friedrich Engels to England, where he saw the Industrial Revolution firsthand, and as a result, wrote his famous Das Kapital. Uh, Marx's thinking is known as dialectical materialism, or economic determinism. What he was arguing is that all life and reality can be explained by changes in the ownership of the means of production. So that economics is the key to life. And he traced five stages that he thought every society would go through, beginning with primitive communism, then feudalism, capitalism, socialism, and then the ultimate synthesis, the so-called classless society, uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat, which of course we've never seen, 
and we never will see. All we've seen is the dictatorship over the proletariat. And what has happened in Eastern Europe and the Russian Commonwealth within the last few years uh, is the long-anticipated counter-revolution. Still remains to be seen what will happen with that revolution. Now, the third name you need to be aware of is that of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Uh, Lenin wanted to speed up the dialectical process by enforcing social change through violent revolution. Under Lenin's leadership, the Bolsheviks became a small but dedicated band of highly disciplined, no-nonsense professional revolutionaries who catapulted backward czarist Russia into an advanced socialist state through the great October Revolution of 1917. Now, I don't know about you, but quite frankly, uh, I have a certain admiration for those old guard Bolsheviks, Lenin, Trotsky, Rykovsky, Smirnov, Bukharin, Rykov, Krestinsky, Radek, Voroshilov, Zinoviev. These men were serious about their cause. And though they were dead wrong ideologically, yet in their own way, in their day, they turned their world upside down. They did it by capturing people's minds and changing the way they thought and so changed the way they lived. Now, to move from the historical to the personal, in terms of my own background, uh, being as I am, a first-wave baby boomer, I found myself on the college campus in the late 1960s, and as a result, uh, dabbled in the radical student movement of that day, uh, and frankly, I admired some of the Marxists I knew, some of whom I had as professors at the university. Uh, they had such high ideals. Uh, they believed in a cause that was greater than themselves, willing to make the necessary sacrifices for that cause. And that they had a certain integrity about them because of their commitments. But I soon discovered that Marxism wasn't radical enough, for it had no way to explain the need for a change in human nature. Christianity taught me that an individual first has to go through a radical, ontological, and epistemological revolution, which we know as biblical conversion, before any other kind of revolution can take place. Now, my great claim to fame when I was in college is that I was listed as a subversive with the Michigan State Police. Uh, somehow they saw me as... Uh, uh, dangerous as uh, some kind of threat to society. Uh, since that time, obviously, I've completely changed ideologies, uh, but I'm still a subversive. And I want this pluralistic, politically correct, morally vacuous society to know that because of what I believe today, to them, I'm still dangerous. As a matter of fact, in this sense, all of us as believers are subversives because we are attempting to subvert a world order which John says in his first epistle lies in the lap of the evil one. And even though we will never be able to overturn this present world order in this age, we nevertheless 
can effect significant change in social relations and social structure through the regenerate membership of a local church as a continuing witness to a lost and dying world. This is nothing other, men and women, than a form of permanent revolution or what the New Testament calls the Great Commission. Now, you may wonder uh, what I am today politically since I'm no longer a Marxist. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I am not a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. I am a theological, theocratic monarchist. I believe in a king. And I do not agitate and I do not proclaim violent revolution. But I do proclaim to those around me that if they do not give their allegiance to my monarch, they will suffer the consequences. Because when he comes back, he's not going to be voted into the office of king by the principle of one man, one vote. When he returns, he's not going to take sides. He's going to take over. And he is going to violently overthrow all the governments of the world and replace them with his own government. And when he does, then the utopia that the Marxists have only dreamed about will finally be a reality. Now, as I've reflected in recent years on my own shift on the ideological spectrum from Marxism to Christianity, I've been increasingly impressed with the great paradox that within the American brand of Christianity, which I have come to embrace, I find the same kind of bourgeois mentality to which I was so opposed as a Marxist. And it seems that my own personal experience at this point, and I move here from the personal to the cultural by way of context, may reflect a broader cultural shift that affects in particular the baby boom generation of which I am a member. You see, the yippies of the 60s, became the yuppies of the 80s. And that yuppie mentality that we've heard so much about, which has continued on in the self-movement of the 90s, is nothing other than the distilled quintessence of that petty bourgeois mindset. The baby boomers who were on the march in their late teens and early 20s have now become couch potatoes in their late 30s and early 40s. That movement of 25 years ago has lost its idealism and it's turned in on itself. I'll give you an example of what I mean from my own uh, background. I remember 1968, uh, Gracie Slick and Jefferson Starship singing Volunteers of America got the revolution. Now, I know most of you weren't even alive then, um, but there were others of us who were marching to that beat. But 20 years later, 1988, Gracie Slick and Jefferson Starship were singing, We Built This City on Rock and Roll. Uh, the movement has turned in on itself. Idealism has turned into pragmatism. Ideology has been replaced with psychology. Marxism has given way to narcissism. And what I would say to my generation and to you as the next generation coming along behind is that we've lost our way, that we need to go back and recapture that idealism 
that commitment to a cause that's greater than ourselves, that transcends our own personal needs and concerns before we can move forward. Now to illustrate this idealism that I think we need to recapture, I would like to read to you the stanzas of a song that was popular when I was in college. Uh, This song had an enormous influence on my thinking and in some ways has marked me down to this day. The song was sung by my favorite singing group when I was in college, Sly and the Family Stone. The song is simply entitled Stand. And here's how the stanzas go. Stand. In the end, you'll still be you. One who's done all the things he set out to do. Stand. For the things you want are real. You have you to complete. And there is no deal. Stand. For the things you know are right. It's the truth not your youth, that makes them so uptight. Stand. You've been sitting much too long. There must be a permanent increase in right over wrong. Stand. There's a cross for you to bear. Things to go through if you're going anywhere. Stand. They will try to make you crawl because they know what you're saying makes sense to all. Stand, there's a midget standing tall and a giant beside him about to fall. Stand, don't you know that you are free? Well, at least in your mind, if you want to be. Now, those words were written over 25 years ago by a secular rock group, have absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity, and yet express exactly what the attitude of the Christian ought to be toward a God-hating, Christ-rejecting, pagan world. Uh, We, as believers, need to take our stand against the world around us, proclaiming the truth and calling for repentance. Now, if I could shift gears a little bit here from this whole issue of context now to some of these issues I'd like to look at, uh, commitment, community, and criticism, taken in that order. And I'd like to look first at commitment, And what I'm going to be doing in looking at these issues is reading selections from a book entitled Dedication and Leadership by Douglas Hyde. It's an older work. Uh, Hyde was a former communist who converted to Catholicism. And he wrote this book to show Catholics what they could learn from Marxists. And in my earlier days, uh, Hyde's work had enormous influence on me. Now, in the area of commitment, I'd like to look at three aspects, commitment to the world, commitment to studying, and commitment to teaching. First of all, on commitment to world, let me read what uh, Hyde wrote uh, regarding something that Friedrich Engels had written. Uh, Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx's friend and collaborator, finished his book, Ludwig Feuerbach, with the words, the philosophers have only tried to explain the world. The job, however, is to change it. That's the one statement Engels made with which I still agree. Our goal is to change the world around us, not to become accommodated to it. Now, to keep this goal ever fresh before us, I'd like to suggest we make some changes in terminology 
For example, let's take the word ministry. Now, there's nothing wrong with the word ministry. It's a perfectly good term. Unfortunately, in our circles, uh, it's become too bourgeois. It's, it's a status term. It conjures up images of position, job title, career track, secretaries, assistants, budgets, salaries and benefits, and four-week vacations. Now, I'd like to suggest that instead of saying ministry, we say revolution. Instead of asking one another if you're in the ministry, why don't you ask one another if you're in the revolution? And if we would adopt revolutionary terminology, it would be a whole lot easier to detect attitudes and actions which are counter-revolutionary. Now, from commitment to the world, seeking to change the world around us, to a commitment to studying. And here, Hyde makes reference to the Chinese communist Lu Xiaoqi and what he instructed in this area. Study, Lu Xiaoqi observes, can help the process of development. And he adds, we study for the sole purpose of putting into practice what we have learned. It is for the party and for the victory of the revolution that we study. Now, by comparison, as you are here in your studies, I would like to suggest that you're not here to study for the purpose of maintaining a certain GPA so that you can get into a certain prestigious graduate program so that you can gain more respect and earn more money. You are not here to advance yourself. You are here to advance a cause. You are studying here for the purpose of preparing yourself to be used by God in whatever way He ordains. After all, you're in this for His glory, not your gross income. Now, in the area of teaching, commitment to teaching, and I'm assuming that many of you are going to be involved in some way in the local church somewhere, and in that context may have opportunity to do some teaching. I'd like to read what Pide has written in this whole area of teaching and what he observed within the Catholic Church. He says, Each tutor is expected, as he prepares his notes, to ask himself the question, education for what? This is a question which Catholic educators might well regularly ask themselves, and of course, I would add in here, Protestants as well. Too often, the purpose is lost sight of. And we then have a situation where priests, nuns, and teaching brothers who years earlier followed their vocation, believing that this called for total dedication, get so caught up in the job of teaching that the original purpose recedes into the background and they begin to measure success only in terms of academic achievements. Achievements which, incidentally, could almost certainly be those of lay teachers. This is not only a waste of priests, it's a waste of opportunities too. The point he's making is education is not just for academic achievement, it must also be for character development. And I would like to propose that whatever teaching you do, you need to remember your goal is not to impress people with how much you know, but rather to make an impress upon them of your own biblically-based values and convictions as you pour your life into them and disciple them and radicalize them for the cause of Christ. That's your purpose and your goal 
in the teaching that you do. Now, if I could move on from commitment to the issue of community. And here I'd like to point out the contrast between community and individualism and also make an observation about community and accountability. Now, Hyde has an interesting point to make here about the relationship that an individual communist had with the party. But the party member is not left to achieve all that is expected of him in some lonely fight with his baser bourgeois self, nor is he left to wrestle alone with his self-cultivation like someone trying to pass some impossibly difficult examinations on the basis of self-study courses. The party is there to aid him. There was a sense of community in the Communist Party because everybody was brought together, dedicated to the same purpose and the same cause. And what has happened in our own culture is that the individualism of our culture has robbed us of our own sense of community and corporate solidarity within the church. It's the constitutional right to privacy which has undercut our commitment to one another as fellow believers in the church. We are in the church and leading the church for the purpose of helping and encouraging one another to exhort and edify one another not to PR one another, not to manage one another, not to manipulate one another for our own ends. And this leads into the very next issue here, which is this issue of accountability. Uh, Hyde has a very interesting observation to make about the way a cell group leader would work with a member of the party that he saw moving away from where the party was going. He, that is this cell group leader, would visit a member he considered to be in need of guidance who looked like developing away from the party or showing signs of still clinging to old bourgeois prejudices and attitudes. Earnestly, they would discuss together how the comrade might improve himself and so become a good communist, the sort of person he wanted to be. Now, that's exactly what pastors and elders ought to be doing with the members of their church. Uh, as they are straying into sin, they need to be called into account. And the leaders in the church need to be sitting down with the people in the church and opening the scriptures and discussing with them what God has revealed to bring them back to the right commitment they need to have to their Lord, uh, to challenge them to examine themselves and get right with God and confess their sins and move on and become the kind of dedicated disciple that by the grace of God they really want to be. There's much for us to learn by this example. Now if I could give you a one more example from my own background here to try to illustrate the kind of sense of community I think we need to have and accountability to one another as believers in Christ. Um, I'd like to refer to the famous Democratic National Convention in Chicago of 1968. Now, I realize most of you probably weren't even alive then, but maybe you've read about it uh, in all of the civil disturbances were going on at that time, and uh, students were marching all over the place. And as we were marching down Michigan Avenue, we were singing a song called Lay Down by Melanie. 
Some of the verses go like this. We were so close, there was no room. We bled inside each other's wounds. We all caught the same disease. We all sang the songs of peace. Some came to sing. Some came to pray. Some came to keep the night away. And I would submit to you that that is exactly what the church of Jesus Christ ought to be in this world, as we are called to be salt and light. Are you bleeding inside each other's wounds? Have you all caught the same disease? Now, if I could move from commitment and community to the issue of criticism. And this is a very important concept for Bolsheviks. And uh, Hyde brings out two aspects of criticism, personal criticism and cultural criticism. And I'd like to look first at this area of personal criticism. As Hyde describes it, they call it Bolshevik self-criticism, which seems like a piece of communist jargon, but is very meaningful to the communists. They would certainly claim that it is one of the healthiest and best institutions in the party's life. When you make a contribution to the discussion, you first criticize yourself, admitting that it was in such and such a way that you went wrong. You make no reference to your successes. These can be taken for granted. Instead, you say, I slipped up completely on this, on that, and on the other. Then, having criticized yourself honestly and forthrightly, you consider that you are entitled to do the same with the other people present. He adds to that, Bolshevik self-criticism is of considerable psychological importance because it helps to create a serious-minded approach to the members' activities, to the man who joins the Communist Party and sees self-criticism at work. It looks like clear evidence that here is a serious-minded group of people anxious to cut through all the cant and nonsense and get on with the jobs that matter. Now, this is nothing other, men and women, than believers repenting of their sin and confessing their sin to one another in holding one another accountable to each other for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging one another. And what has happened is that positive thinking has made such inroads to the church today that if anybody says anything negative, they're immediately labeled as having a critical spirit, as being harsh, divisive, unloving. We need to remember, if we do not judge ourselves, God will judge us. If we do not discipline ourselves within the body of Christ, we will experience divine chastening. We need to incorporate a healthy dose of Bolshevik self-criticism within the church and apply it as part of our philosophy of ministry in the church so that those outside the church will see that we're not in this business to promote ourselves or our own interests or build our own empires. 
but we are seriously getting on with the real job that matters, which is proclaiming the gospel of Christ, leading others to him, planting his church around the world. Now, if I could move from the personal criticism to the cultural criticism, and Hyde brings out two aspects uh, in this uh, broader sense. First, criticism regarding standard of living, and then secondly is criticism regarding leadership training. The cause of religion is not served by using free enterprise society and Christianity as though they were interchangeable and synonymous terms. The free enterprise society may be affluent for some, and it has certainly achieved higher material standards than men have ever known before. This does not make it more Christian. Indeed, evidence suggests that it is more likely to have the reverse effect. After all, didn't Jesus say how hard it was for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? There's nothing in Christian social teaching to support the widely held view that men have an inalienable human right to an everlasting, uh, ever-rising standard of life regardless of what is happening to other men in the neighboring borough, on the other side of the tracks, or on the other side of the world. And what I see happening in the church today, quite frankly, is it seems to be following the lead of corporate America, where the pastor is being redefined as the CEO, uh, elders and deacons are looked at as the board of directors, and the members are seen as the stockholders. And if there is an identification between Christianity and affluence, then all we are doing is promoting a religious version of the American dream. And if America's still here when Jesus comes back, he is going to destroy the American dream. And it's time for us to make sure we're lined up in our view of the church, in our view of Scripture, and everything we're doing with what God has commanded, not what our society is doing. Now, the final area here of criticism is criticism of approaches in leadership training. Here's what Hyde wrote. The communist is taught always to ask himself, what do I do as a communist? The answer he provides flows directly from his beliefs. Action and belief are always related in his mind and in his practice, too. The purpose of Christian leadership training is not just to help ambitious men to the top or to make little men who've done leadership courses feel bigger than they really are. Still less is it to produce furors, either large or small. Now listen to this. It has much more to do with the making of integrated people, ones who understand what they believe are deeply dedicated to it and who try unceasingly to relate their beliefs to every facet of their own lives and to the society in which they live. That is exactly what we as believers ought to be doing in the church today. To the Christian, there is something peculiarly poignant about atheistic communists saying as so many so often do, from the very depths of their hearts, there is nothing too good for the party. And then going out and making their actions match their words. There's no need to underline what the Christian's positive response to that ought to be.
We need to take seriously the challenge we have of realizing that there are unbelievers in this world who are more committed to false causes and false religions than we are to the truth. Now, what I'd like to do, in contrast to the kind of leadership being described there, is give you an example of another kind of leader, a Bolshevik leader. Now, as a student of theology, uh, my heroes today are men like John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Charles Hodge, among others. In my Marxist days, my hero was Leon Davidovich Trotsky. Trotsky, that brilliant orator, that superb dialectician, preeminent military tactician. He was Lenin's right-hand man. He single-handedly saved the encircled Reds from sure defeat at the hands of the Whites in the Russian Civil War, 1918 to 1922. He was also appointed by Lenin to be his successor, according to Lenin's own last political testament, which was read before the party's central committee at the urging of his wife, Krupskaya. But Stalin had other plans. Now, to give you some insight into Trotsky's character, I would like to read for you a portion of a last will and testament written by a man I know you've never heard of, Adolf Abramovich Yoffe. Yoffe was Soviet ambassador to Japan in the early 1920s, contracted tuberculosis, and so returned to Moscow, where he worked as Trotsky's deputy in the war commissariat. Now, knowing that he was dying and he could not get the medical help he needed, also seeing what Stalin was doing to undermine the revolution that Trotsky was leading, Yoffe made his last political statement by committing suicide in the Kremlin, 1926. And he left behind a last will and testament, part of which is addressed to Trotsky. Here's what it says. You and I, dear Lev Davidovich, are bound to each other by decades of joint work. And I make bold to hope of personal friendship. This gives me the right to tell you in, in departing what I think you are mistaken in. Notice the Bolshevik self-criticism right to the very end. I have never doubted the rightness of the road you pointed out. And as you know... I have gone with you for more than 20 years since the days of permanent revolution. But I have always believed that you lacked Lenin's unbending will, his unwillingness to yield, his readiness even to remain alone on the path that he thought right in the anticipation of a future majority, of a future recognition by everyone of the rightness of of his path. Politically, you were always right, beginning with 1905. By the way, let me practice a little Bolshevik self-criticism on Yoffe here. He's mistaken in the year. He's thinking of the famous London Conference in the summer of 1903, which led to the division between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And I told you repeatedly that with my own ears I had heard Lenin admit that even in 1905, you and not he were right. One does not lie before his death. And now I repeat this again to you. But you have often abandoned your rightness 
for the sake of an overvalued agreement or compromise. This is a mistake. I repeat, politically you've always been right, but now more right than ever. Someday the party will realize it, and history will not fail to accord recognition. Then don't lose your courage if someone leaves you now, or if not as many come to you, and not as soon as we all would like. You are right, but the guarantee of the victory of your rightness lies in nothing but the extreme unwillingness to yield, the strictest straightforwardness, the absolute rejection of all compromise. In this lay the secret of Lenin's victories. Many a time I have wanted to tell you this, but only now have I brought myself to do so as a last farewell. Now what is so amazing to me is the observation made by the Marxist biographer of Trotsky on the impact this statement had on Trotsky's life. Here's what he said. Trotsky took these words to heart. The end of his life was an exalted but often painful exercise in the rejection of compromise and the preservation at whatever cost of integrity between action and belief. Now, why is it so difficult for us today to have the kind of integrity that Trotsky had? I think it's because we love ourselves too much. We're too consumed with our own felt needs and self-esteem. Didn't Jesus say that we had to lose our lives before we could find them? You see, each one of us has a pampered, petty bourgeois, narcissistic self inside of us. That self must die. We want popularity. He gives us pain. We want power. He brings persecution. We want recognition. We get rejection. We look for success. We find suffering. Therefore, we must die to ourselves first before we can begin living for him. Now, you might be wondering at this point, well, what should I do with all of this uh, in a practical way? And I would suggest you start doing what I've been doing, first at Dallas Seminary, now at Master Seminary, and that is training and developing a hand-picked core of dedicated, disciplined, steel-hardened cadres for Christ who will go wherever he leads, do whatever he commands, sacrifice whatever he asks for the sake of his cause, for the glory of his name, and for the advancement of his kingdom. I realize many of you may not yet have chosen a career track, and that's still a little ways down the road yet, but I would like to exhort you, as you think about whatever direction you're going to move in in future career, regardless of your occupation, there's something that all of you are obligated to be doing. And I came across a little half-page article uh, that describes exactly what each one of us need to be doing because all of us need to be about the Father's business. And this uh, article is entitled, Being About the Father's Business, Author Unknown. The Lord has given to every man his work. It is his business to do it. 
and the devil's business to hinder him if he can. As surely as God gives a man a work to do, Satan will try to hinder him. He may present other things more promising. He may allure you by worldly prospect. He may assault you with slander, torment you with false accusations, or or set you to work defending your character, employ pious persons to lie about you, and excellent men to slander you. You may have Pilate, Herod, Ananias, and Caiaphas all combined against you, and Judas standing by to sell you for 30 pieces of silver. And you may wonder why all these things have come to pass. Can you not see that the whole thing is brought about through the craft of the devil to draw you off from your work and hinder your obedience to Christ? Keep about your work. Do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not waste your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Do your work. Let liars lie. Let sectarians quarrel. Let the devil do his worst. But see to it that nothing hinders you from fulfilling the work God has given you to do. He has not sent you to make money. He has not commanded you to get rich. He has never bidden you to defend your character. Nor has he bidden you to contradict falsehoods about yourself, which Satan and his servants may start to peddle. If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You will be at work for yourself and not for the Lord. Keep about your work. Let your aim be steady as a star. Let the world brawl and bubble. You may be assaulted, wrangled, insulted, slandered, wounded, rejected. You may be chased by foes, abused by them, forsaken by friends, despised and rejected of men. But see to it that with steadfast determination and unfaltering zeal, you pursue that great purpose of your life and the object of your being until at last you can say, I have finished the work which you, dear God, have given me to do. What I would encourage you to do is put aside petty anxieties and trivial neuroses and begin living like him by living to him. Take your stand against this high-tech upwardly mobile, commercialized, materialistic, narcissistic society and become theological Bolsheviks. Long live the revolution. We stand and we can close in prayer. Father, how we thank you that our Lord sacrificed everything that he could have had in this world in order to come and die for us that we might have the great privilege of eternal fellowship with you. Father, as we reflect on what our Lord has done for us, how can we not but respond by offering ourselves and everything we have to him? That we would follow him picking up our cross denying ourselves wherever necessary in order that others would hear of the truth and would likewise respond in faith and repentance and trusting in him. Lord, let us not be judged by finding other unbelievers who are more committed to their falsehoods than we are to your truth. 
Lead us, Father, in the truth and use us to expand your glory and we will give you the praise for all you do in and through us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, You're dismissed and be back at 1020 for the next session. Thanks.